A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Hi, my name is Grigor Dimitrov, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. Hi, I'm Mats Villander, and you are listening to The Tennis Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. And we have a very, very special guest this week. In the year 2000, this mountain of muscle from Moscow won the US Open title, thrashing Pete Sampras in straight sets in front of a shocked New York crowd. Five years later, he beat a peak Roger Federer, 9-7 in the fifth set, on his way to the Australian Open title. Yes, we have Marit Safin on the tennis podcast this week, from the Kia Motors Champions Cup in Seoul, Korea. And Marit tells us about the rackets he's smashed, the titles he's won, his political career, and his thoughts about Federer, Djokovic, and tennis today. Before we talk to Marit, let's look ahead to the BNP Paribas WTA finals in Singapore. Catherine Whittaker's there. Catherine, how are you doing? Hello. I'm all right, thanks. Greetings from uh, from afar. I'm in Singapore. It's uh, it's very different climes to where you are, but it's uh, it's interesting, that's for sure. And yesterday was the draw ceremony. The players were all dressed up to the nines and they made quite a quite a thing of the whole occasion, didn't they? I mean, it seems as though they really are pulling out all the stops over there. Yeah, it, it's an enormous deal here. I mean, we know how big a deal the, the tour finals are on both the men's and the, the women's calendar, but they really do pull out all the stops for the, uh, for the women's world tour finals here. And uh, there's no doubt... There's an appetite for it here in Singapore. I mean, they hold the draw ceremony at, at, I mean, to describe it as a shopping mall would probably do it a disservice because shopping malls here aren't really the same as shopping malls elsewhere in the world. It's sort of this complex, I mean, this it's basically a city. Uh, it's a shopping mall the size of a city. And so there were there were public all around in this uh, in this sort of arena area that, that hosted the, the draw ceremony and the the players were announced one by one and just the the atmosphere, the welcome that they received, um, particularly Maria Sharapova. I mean, she is a huge superstar here for, for obvious reasons. I, I've no doubt Serena Williams would have received the same reception had she been here. But I have to say, the, the fact of Serena Williams not being here does sort of feel like old news. I think it was actually quite... As, a, as big a blow as it is to the event that Serena isn't here, and there's no doubt it is, you know, the undoubted world number one not being at these World Tour finals is, of course, a huge blow. I do think her, because of how far and away better she is than everybody else, her not being here really opens things up. You know, there really does feel like a 
an atmosphere of competition and, and a feeling of the unknown amongst these eight players. And, and very interestingly, Venus Williams, who is the, the ninth qualifier, she's the first alternate. She has come here and she's shown up. And uh, I rather suspect she, she wouldn't do that if she didn't think there was a good chance that somebody would pull out injured. I don't know if she knows something that we all don't, because as far as I know... Nobody is planning to pull out. Um, I'm sure by the time a lot of you are listening to this, all will have become clear. But Venus Williams is here. She was on the practice schedule today. So who knows what's going to happen? But it's certainly a statement of intent from her and a statement of how much it means to her at this stage of her career. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose in some ways this is a little bit of a snapshot of what life might look like after Serena, isn't it, to look at these eight players? I mean, obviously some of them are of not dissimilar age or, or certainly uh, people like Maria Sharapova has been around for a while as well. But it, you're right in terms of the, the competitive element of it. It doesn't feel like Serena and the rest, which it did kind of feel like that last year looking at the field. And looking at the, the way the draw has come out, you've got the red group, with Halep as the top seed and yet she doesn't feel like the overwhelming leading player there she's alongside Maria Sharapova Agnieszka Radvanska who's now in form and then you've got Flavia Panetta who's won the most recent Grand Slam title that is one heck of a group there is not a bad match on paper in that group yeah, and, and for me, neither in the other group. We've got three lefties in the other group as well. I mean, Kvitova, Safarova. I mean, for me, it was, a, it was a fantastic draw, actually. It probably couldn't have come out any better from, the, from a perspective of the group stages. And you might think, looking at the draw, that maybe, maybe Sharapova was the, the standout favourite. But, I mean, she's had such a rocky second half of the season. You just don't know. You just don't know if she'll even be particularly competitive. I mean, she could be a runaway winner or she could be, you know, a feeble uh, shadow of, of the Maria Sharapova that we know. I mean, it really, although it's, as I keep saying, a huge loss not to have Serena here, it does make it incredibly interesting. I mean, Garbina Muguruza yesterday at the draw ceremony, she had her game face on as much as anybody, if not more than anybody, I would say, you know, behind the scenes, before they were all called out for the draw ceremony, a lot of them were very jovial, very, you know, obviously they desperately want to win it, but they they were extremely convivial with one another behind the scenes, whereas Garbina Muguruza was very much in the in the Maria Sharapova, Sharapova frame of mind of, you know, no friends here, I'm I'm in this to win this, and I, I, and I can't see anything else until the end of the week. It was very much a game face from her. So I do wonder if she's uh, maybe the one to watch. Yeah, you're right. There was a a, a very uh, jolly-looking photo that was put out of all the players together sitting on the same chairs that a year ago they were all sort of, apart from Serena Williams and Caroline Wozniacki who were merrily chatting away to one another, they were shown basically cold-shouldering each other and that, that was a very uh, sig significant-looking photo, wasn't it? A year ago when you got Bouchard and Sharapova just looking as though they'd rather be anywhere else than sat next to one another. Um, but no, it's uh, it, that was a great shot. Uh, to see them all having a good time. The other group, you've got three left-handers in Kvitova, Safarova and Kerber all together alongside uh, Muguruza there. Yeah, I love the look of that group. I mean, I know the other group uh, is the one with sort of the, the the ones to watch the big the bigger names in relatively, I suppose. But I love the look of that second group with the three left-handers. I, I don't see... 
a bad match in that one. I mean, I suppose two lefties against one another can sometimes throw up in a slight throw up a slightly odd match. But I really, I mean, can can you see a bad match anywhere in in any of those draws? Whereas with Serena in the draw, you you're bound to get a couple of you know absolute beatdowns, as uh, as our dear friend of the show Brad Gilbert might say. And and yes, of course that could happen. But I don't I don't predict any beatdowns to happen. I mean, I do genuinely see good competitive matches pretty much across the board in this one. No, absolutely. Well, I, I was commentating today on Svetlana Kuznetsova's win over Anastasia Pavlichenkova in the final of Moscow. That was the final tournament before Singapore starts. And uh, if you're in the UK, it's on BT Sport all the way through next week. So see if you can catch some of the matches very early morning UK time. Now, our special guest this week, Catherine, is Mr. Marit Safin, a man who's won two Grand Slam titles. What a thrill to have him on the show. He was speaking to our good friend David Levy in Seoul, Korea at the ATP Champions event there, the Kia Motors Champions Cup. Just before we hear from Marit Safin, what about your memories of the big Russian? What stands out? Well, I suppose the big one that stands out is the one that probably stands out for everybody is that 2005 Australian Open and not necessarily the final. It's the semi-final against Roger Federer when he saved match points. And for me, he did what very few people have done, which is beat Roger Federer at his best. And he did that. And that, that can never be taken away from him. But... I'm pretty sure everybody remembers that of, of Marit Safin. And uh, as I say, it can't be detracted from. But my my less, slightly less obvious memory, shall we say, is uh, of the Paris Masters. And I do remember this very vividly. Uh, it was in 2002, I think. And, what, and Leighton Hewitt was the sort of, it was in that relatively brief time and Leighton Hewitt was sort of the undisputed world world number one he was far and away the world number one it didn't last long but there was a reign there where where Leighton Hewitt had a clear margin over everybody else in the field and Marit Safin it was in the days when Master Series events had five set finals and he absolutely crushed Leighton Hewitt in that final I think there was a six love set in there seven six there was a tie break set six love and then a slightly more competitive third set but I remember that six love set vividly and it was one of those matches a little bit like uh the Wimbledon semi-final last year of Federer versus Murray where Murray didn't play badly it's just he wasn't in the match you know the world number one at the time Leighton Hewitt he didn't play badly it's just he didn't have an opportunity to play because Marit Safin at his best, back then, took away any opportunity to play from anybody else. And we saw that in 2000 when he won the US Open, beating Pete Sampras, absolutely thrashing Pete Sampras, frankly. I mean, Safin, at his best, could really pretty much thrash anybody. And that's the joy and the tragedy, I suppose, of of Marit Safin. Yeah, that's always the question mark, is how much more could he have done? And it is a question that Dave put to Marit Safin. It's something we'll hear about during the interview with him. Catherine, you better go and get to some rest before the, uh, the, the action starts in Singapore. Lovely to have you with us, of course, here on the Tennis Podcast. But let's hear from Marit Safin. The last time Catherine spoke to him about four years ago, he was just about starting his political career. So how's that going? Yeah, well, uh, I've been uh, quite some time, and the last five years I was dedicating myself to the um, 
being in the parliament, um, completely new life, everything new, and um, it's a great experience, opens your mind a lot, you start to understand and you start to see things that you never saw before, you never could understand how it's working now, uh, now it's been, uh, it's been great for me to, uh, to experience a new thing, and especially being in a uh, being a politician in such a big country like Russia, it's uh, it's pretty pretty big and it's pretty important because everybody's looking after you, what you're doing and how you're doing, and where you're aiming. And there's a little bit of, of course, a, lo a little bit of stress. You have to make sure that you know what you're doing, what you're speaking, and uh, how you're behaving because everybody uh, is looking after you. And it's it's tough. So you have to be. Uh, like in tennis, you have to be professional and uh, take care of yourself and uh, be a little bit mature than you are, because otherwise uh, you are responsible for a lot of uh, a lot of lives. So I can't I can't afford to uh, to be to enjoy the life and uh, to live the, the the way I want because it doesn't work this way. But but like experience, it's, it's great. And what did you find out about yourself? What did you discover about yourself and how? Because it's a very different life being a politician to being a tennis player. Well, for, for sure, it's a big difference. But uh, some things of sports uh, that are very, uh, very needed. Sports give you a mentality of a, of a winner and uh, being focused, be patient in some things and uh, think, think, think. Uh, tennis is also the same thing because uh, you think you're playing every point and basically it's like a chess Politics, you can think, you can take some time, you can be patient, but it's um, not that easy um, because it's uh, first two years was a, a little bit tough for me because you need to get used to it and uh, get used to, to, to the routine and then uh, afterwards was a little bit easier. And uh, how I ended up there, they offered me uh, one of the regions in Russia uh, where there is a friend of mine, he's a vice, uh, vice governor of uh, Nizhny Novgorod, and they offered me with the governor to become and represent their um, region in the parliament because uh, there have been like five or six people from our region and they needed somebody, uh, somebody else and um, I took a chance, thinking a couple of months, should I do it or should I not? And the people convinced me that uh, for sure I have to go there and uh, at least experience once how is it to be in a, being a politician. And what's it like to be here with these guys? I know that Goran, uh, I know he thinks a lot of you. He said that he respected the way you threw your racket. He said you throw the racket like a man, a real man. Um, is it true you broke more than 40 rackets in a year once? Um, when you break them, do you think it helped you when you were playing tennis? Well, I, well thanks for Goran. Uh, that's from who I learned to break rackets. So He taught you everything you know about yeah, how to yeah, break a racket. All the bad things I learned from him. I don't know why. And um, no, I broke more than 40 rackets a year, around, around 80. That was my record. Uh, nothing to be proud of. But, uh, but it helped me uh, in a lot in a way because it's difficult to hold the stress inside of you and um, you need to let it go. And so to, to clean up the bad, uh, bad vibes in the body, you need to, to throw it away and then uh, start, to, start all over again. Otherwise, it doesn't work. I couldn't function the other way. To calm yourself, it's a little bit difficult. I, I didn't know how, how to manage the other way around. So the racket was suffering the most. A few rackets suffered. Um, you had many high points of your career. How do you look back on, because people always remember the 2000 US final, how do you look back on, on that now with happy memories? 
Yeah, it was was a great great career for for myself because from where I came from and uh, with the difficulties to find a sponsor and uh, where millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking. And I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. To practice, I went to Bolitieri, Bolitieri didn't take me, then I went to Spain, and uh, so I had to do it everything from from zero without any money. And it's a lot of also stressful situations uh, back then because um, otherwise, what do you do? And I had an opportunity to become a tennis player. I was lucky in a way, and I was unlucky in a way because I had a lot of injuries. Unfortunately, I had to quit because uh, because of my knee, I couldn't run anymore, and to compete against these guys, the young ones, Djokovic, uh, Murray, Nadal, you need to run, and I could feel that I cannot I cannot run anymore, and it's a little bit tough for myself uh, to realize that you can't uh, you can't be back in the top ten, even fighting for top five, and for me it was a big thing because otherwise to stay at 30, 40 in the world. It's not really my uh, my achievement, with respect to all the players who are around 30, 40 in the world. But but the way I played, if uh, if I would be healthy, I would continue. I would continue to play. But unfortunately, too many injuries. And um, you had to wait five years between winning your Grand Slams. Um, do you think you played better in 2000 uh, when you beat Pete, or in 2005 in that semi-final against Roger, which was a better performance for you? A different kind of matches, different kind of players, and uh, of course the way I played in uh, 2000 was, uh, for me it was, uh, um, I didn't know that I could play tennis like this, uh, for me it was an incredible experience, I just was surprised with myself, 
And then we had a couple of uh, finals uh, of Australia I lost. I had an opportunity in the French Open, semi-final, semi-final in Wimbledon. And so you, you, every time you don't manage to, to win a second Grand Slam, you start to be paranoid about it because everybody, yeah, 2001 and what's, what's, what's next? You lost two finals and it's not really, really good. So I was under a lot of stress to, to win again because I knew that I had a chance, but also the time was flying. And after five years, I was lucky that uh, to win the Australian Open, so I was a little bit more calm about it. But I had a paranoia, big paranoia about uh, winning the second Grand Slam. And uh, I was lucky to achieve it, because just for myself. You feel like you put a lot of pressure on yourself to win that yeah. second one? Is more difficult the second one than the first one? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this, uh, yeah, and the problem is that I put a little bit too much pressure on myself on, uh, in certain moments in my career. And it didn't come out really good for me. And I had the opportunity to win a French Open uh, when I lost two semifinals of Ferre- uh, to Ferrero. Uh, Wimbledon won. Well, I lost to Federer in semifinals. But I had my um, I had my chance. But I was uh, putting a little bit too much pressure on myself, and uh, couldn't. That's why it didn't take me the I didn't take the chance to win it. Do you have any regrets about that? Um, about not winning more? Well, regrets, you can't regret the past life. It's, it's, it's in the past. It was a good moments, bad moments. Obviously, you could have done better, but it's like uh, hypothetically, but it is what it is. I could have not even started to play tennis without money. So it depends how you look, uh, look at it. Of course, I wish to win uh, 10, 15 Grand Slams, but not so many, not so many chances. And uh, plus, back then was a little bit different. Much more players, quality players. Uh, we're back then and like top 20 guys that like you need to really uh, they're all good players uh, Goran when I was playing big names Krychek, Agassi, Sampras Norman, Kafelnikov, Kuerten and uh, compared to now the level of tennis I see it and it's just a little bit too ridiculous compared to now back then was much more quality players much you, more you think that the, there were there were more players who were better then or the overall standard is better because I mean do you think how do you think Novak Djokovic would have got on in, in that era uh, he's, a, he's a good player I, didn't, I, I don't want to take the credit for many of these guys at all but just uh, now we have only four guys five guys who are playing and uh, deciding basically the, the world of tennis mm. back then it's like 20-30 players that you really need to beat, and it's not. It wasn't easy, easy way of doing it. Look, uh, not so many players they won uh, back then. Let's say from '98 that I started to 2008 that I finished, there were not so many players that won uh, huge amounts of, of Grand Slams, except uh, Federer afterwards when he started. But it was difficult because uh, it was too many players, too many, too many good players. And uh, now it's half of them you don't even know, uh, young ones, but. Uh, like only top five, I see. The rest, I'm sorry, but uh, it's a long way from from being top five. And let's talk about Federer because you came along at a similar time to Federer. You had success much earlier than him. Mm-hmm. The ATP, do you remember? They did an, uh, a campaign. They called it "New Balls, Please." And you said you questioned whether he should be in it because you said that he hadn't won anything yet. Now, 15 years later, he's won 17 Grand Slams and he's still going. Yeah. What are your thoughts about Roger now? No, Roger, I think he's the most talented player of all times, uh, but with a, with a big difference uh, because uh, he's the most complete player. He has so many instruments and he can use so many instruments in tennis that no, not anyone can do it. And uh, in a, 
he can do with the ball anything he wants. And uh, we, unfortunately, were not so, so talented compared to him. Um, you played Novak very, very early in his career at the Australian Open. Um, you absolutely thrashed him. What did you think of him back then? And could you tell how good he was going to become when you played him? Yeah, well, you could see that uh, he's a talented player and he will become a good player, but I didn't, ex- uh, didn't expect that he's going to win 10, 10 Grand Slams. But like I said, right now, it's, I don't think it's... It's a little bit easier to win a Grand Slam now, being uh, these top five guys, top four guys, than, uh, than back then. And, but you could see that he, will, uh, that he would become a good player. Because he has all the shots, and the guy is focused, he's serious, and the way uh, he was practicing, like you knew it will, be, it will pass some, some years and he'll become a top ten. But he's surprised, I think he surprised the, uh, everybody. Last question. It's been released today that you've been nominated for the Hall of Fame, the Tennis Hall of Fame. How does that make you feel? Very proud and uh, a big honour for you? Yeah, for sure. It's a big honour, but still they have to vote. They have uh, it's still a long way to go. So I don't want to... I don't have any expectations, but for me, being a Hall of Fame, of course, it's, uh, for any player, is, uh, it's a huge achievement and it thinks a lot. If they will vote for me, thanks to all of the guys who voted for me to, uh, to enter the Hall of Fame and... Uh, but it's already to be nominated. So. It's a big, um, I didn't expect that. But, but they called me. They told me. Wow. Thank you. So Marit Safin, indeed a nominee for the International Tennis Hall of Fame alongside Justine Ennan, and both of them very worthy rep- recipients of those nominations. And joining me is David Levy, the man who conducted that interview in Seoul with Marit Safin. Dave, he, he's quite a character, isn't he? He really is. Um, he's compelling. Uh, it was great. I'd not met Marat before. Um, I've not worked on any of the Champions Tour events that he's played at, or he hasn't played at any of the ones I've worked at, whichever way around you see it. And he was fascinating. Um, he's charismatic. He's brooding. Um, he's complex. Um, there aren't too many politicians um, that are tennis players and then double Grand Slam winners, and there aren't many tennis players that are going to be politicians. So I found it really interesting, and um, I hope the listeners do too. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm quite sure they will. I think that some of the things he was saying, uh, I would wholeheartedly agree with. I mean, he has his own mind. I have to say, I'd take issue to some degree, and I know Catherine Whitaker feels very strongly that the the idea that the the field of players was that much tougher during his time, and therefore the likes of Federer, Djokovic, and, and Nadal wouldn't have won as many slams in his time as they have in this era. I know she feels very strongly that that's that's not right. Um, I mean, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, it's one of those that we will never know, but certainly. Uh, one view is, would Leighton Hewitt have been world number one in this era as he was back then? Certainly, she feels that he would have struggled to get into the top 10. I think he would have been a top 10 player comfortably in this era because it's easy to forget his tenacity and so forth. But I, I, I think there is room for argument there with Marat's view. But, well, it's his view. Yeah, I think there's a question as to whether Hewitt would have broken into... Um, the big four or actually realistically it's actually the big three who've dominated so many of the Grand Slams over the last seven, eight years or so, Um, perhaps going back even further. I was interested to hear Marat say that he didn't think Djokovic would be as dominant then as he is now. Um, And as you said, comparison is a little bit futile because we'll never know. 
but I disagree with that because I just think Djokovic uh, is an outstanding tennis player. And yes, the standard of the tour was excellent 10 years ago when Marat was playing regularly, but Djokovic is just incredible. And I think he really would have, uh, he would have won a lot of Grand Slams. I take his point about the number of people who could have won a Grand Slam, but that doesn't mean the level was higher. It just means it was more even and those are not the same thing. No, absolutely. Well, Marit Safin memories. I've been asking on Twitter at Tennis Podcast what everybody thinks. Simon Reid says his main memory is definitely the exasperated celebration from Safin when he won against Federer in the Australian Open in 2005, that semi-final. What a match that was. And I know what he means. There was a look on Safin's face as if to say, I, don't, I can't quite believe I've done that. And against uh, Federer is the memory of Ali, who said one of the best matches ever. Also remembers the David Letterman Tonight Show appearance or Late Show appearance uh, after the thrashing of Sampras in the US Open in 2000, which he found hilarious. Anthony Webb says the Grand Slam in 2000, and th- in which he thought that Safin would go on to dominate the tour for a decade. And, well, that didn't happen. I think a lot of people thought that maybe this is the start of, of a Federer-type era that we ended up having, having with different people. Uh, Atleta says the Davis Cup final in 2002 and the Australian Open of 2002, the semi-final against Tommy Haas, was spectacular. Sebastian remembers the 2004 Australian Open semi against Agassi and the fact that he had no double faults in five sets and broke a 26-managing match winning streak from Agassi at that tournament. Cross-court view says, remember the jump backhand from Marat Safin, and it really was extraordinary watching this huge unit of a man, six foot five inches tall and built like a brick house and managing to get both feet off the ground and hit these crunching backhands cross court and finally how could we not include this Dave Shambhala says when he mooned the crowd after hitting an incredible drop shot winner (laughs) against Felix Mantier at Roland Garros in 2004 he dropped his shorts he was so happy (laughs) on the court and, uh, and he got a code violation I'm not surprised. That makes Nick Kyrgios seem like an angel. He uh, he he hasn't done that so far on day one of this event uh, in the Champions Tour in Seoul. So let's see what day two brings. Um, I might not mention that to him because he might <laughs> might do it. What's the event like? It's great. I, you know, I've never been to Korea before. Um, the crowd have been very welcoming, hugely enthusiastic. It's been very well run. Um, the sponsors been. Uh, fantastic and they've really got behind the event and and thrown a lot of energy and enthusiasm into it and the players are having a great time um goran had been here before when he was 17 in the olympics so he doesn't really remember a lot um and michael chang who's also playing um came here but as a tourist with his wife um a long time ago so none you know um none of them have really played much tennis here um fernando gonzalez has certainly never been to to seoul before so it's great to see their experience of the city and the tennis here. Um, and for me to come to somewhere completely different, um, I've not done a huge amount of traveling in Asia before, so it's great to be here. And I really like the Champions Tour. It's a great atmosphere. Um, the players are nicely relaxed um, because they're not playing for points. Um, but they you know, they really want to win. Uh, and so, I, yeah, I had a great time today and I'm really looking forward to uh, the second day tomorrow. The, the players were, were very complimentary about uh, the young Korean player Hyun Chung, weren't they, who was there uh, for a little photo shoot and for the opening ceremony, the press conference. Uh, and Goran Ivanisevic in particular had, had some complimentary words to say about him. He's only 19 years of age. 
it was very clear that he sees him as a top ten player of the future. He listed him alongside um, some some other prospects, Kokonakis and Koric, uh, and sorry, Chorich and and others as being um, one to look out for. Um, and he was genuine in that support. He had some feedback about his serve, um, but said he was very impressed with his ground strokes. And um, he was a very nice young man. He enjoyed meeting him. He's very quiet, very humble. Um, it, I mean this in the nicest possible way. He doesn't look like a tennis player. He doesn't, you know, he looks like a, an ordinary teenager, and in lots of ways he is. He's just extraordinarily talented. Um, so it was really nice to meet him. He's very humble, and I hope he keeps that as he he goes up the rankings. And he's had a great year. It would be interesting to see um, if he wins the ATP's Rising Stars Award because I know he's been nominated for that. Yeah, it will indeed, and it'll be interesting to follow his progress over the next few years. One to look out for, for sure, Hyun Chung, the Korean player, 19 years of age, making some waves on the ATP World Tour. Dave Levy, great to have you with us on the Tennis Podcast. Thank you all for listening to us. There's another ATP Champions Tour event next week in Monterrey, Mexico, the 27th to the 29th of October. In That one features John McInerney and Pete Sampras, so we'll bring you some updates on that. Well, of course, reassemble Catherine Whittaker and myself towards the end or at the end of the WTA finals in Singapore to look back on that event and how it's all gone. The eight player event, of course, the top eight, apart from Serena Williams in the world, all in Singapore. But that's it for now. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 